Welcome to The Fabric, a podcast from Lobby Capital. In this podcast, we explore the people we back, the people we work with, and those we partner with in hopes of better understanding what leads to successful entrepreneurship. Recognizing there is no single recipe or list of ingredients in successful entrepreneurs, but instead a combination of past experiences, relationships, serendipity, and personal characteristics that shape and influence their achievements. So through our conversations, we will dissect various case studies in hopes of unraveling the fabric of successful entrepreneurs. Hi, welcome to The Fabric, a podcast by Lobby Capital. I'm Buddy Arnheim, your host here. I'm also a general partner and co-founder of Lobby Capital. Today, we're thrilled to have Marcus Siegel, the founder and CEO of Forever Games, one of our portfolio companies. Forever Games has developed a VR gaming platform that enables the creation of robust experiential VR games. They have four games in market right now, pool, darts, bowling, and cornhole. Highly encourage our listeners to experience those games firsthand. Marcus, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Great. So we're going to dig in and we're going to go chronological for, for the, at least at the beginning here and ask you, Marcus, about sort of your upbringing. And, and ultimately what we're trying to get to here is sort of how did you get into this entrepreneur thing? Yeah. So I grew up in Van Nuys, California, which is the crown jewel of the San Fernando Valley for those who know LA. My parents split up pretty early when I was uh, three and my mom did the single mom thing for a few years. And, and then she met my stepdad. In my family, it's academia. So my mother collected degrees. She had a a master's in public administration. She had a law degree. Like she went Mm. back to law school when she was 47. My father is a professor of poli-sci. My sister's a theater professor. And my stepdad, who's like a father to me, he is also a professor of engineering and computer science. And so that was sort of the way. And I was surrounded by these people who had like deep, deep focus Mm-hmm. But my mom never could really figure out what it is that she wanted to be. Did she practice and law after she got no, a law degree? Did she no. Huh. She went to law school and realized she didn't want to be a lawyer. And so in the upbringing that I had, I had these incredibly accomplished people and brilliant people around me. And one of them, my mother, was never really figured out exactly what it was that she wanted to do. And so she would just get really passionate about things and excited about what she worked on. And so I had this great model of a multi-potentialite. My parents ran an incredibly cheap ship. There were basically not that many toys. We could have any book that we wanted. Mm -hmm. We were middle class. I watched a lot of television, honestly. And I was not particularly athletic until I got to high school. And, you know, basically we went to the movies every Friday We went to the theater. We had season tickets to go see plays. My parents always took us to museums and we traveled. And so Mm -hmm. they tried to give us kind of a well-rounded education. I remember the joke was that my parents would never spend any money on a decent hotel room. They're like, yeah, who cares where we sleep? Let's spend it on food. And so they were, you know, foodies. And so there was always a lot of exposure to different cultures, Mm -hmm. different ideas, And it wasn't a religious house. So though I'm Jewish, I never went to temple or had a bar mitzvah because my parents said, hey, that's up to you when you're an adult, if that's what you want to do. And so I just didn't do it. I just became curious about lots of things and lots of religions. And so it's interesting. The first time for listeners, I, you know, I met Marcus on Zoom, right? We met virtually and spent a bunch of time together on Zoom. And then I finally came down to LA and saw Marcus and you're tall and you're somewhat statuesque, Mr. Cycle. And (laughs) so it's hearing that you weren't athletic before high school is actually surprising to me because you, you actually have the appearance of an athlete. It was the craziest thing. So I was a Dungeons and Dragons playing like chubby kind of dork. I knew I loved you. I was in the band. I played the trumpet and the baritone horn and all these things. And then the craziest thing, honestly, my pediatrician died. And I got a new pediatrician and he said, what's going on with you? You don't look so good. And he had me do jumping jacks at his office and I started coughing. He's like, you know what? You have asthma. And then I went from being in the PE class with kids in wheelchairs Huh. And we would play checkers during PE. And then they figured out that I had asthma. And then I ended up, 
you know, running a six minute mile and becoming the captain of the football team in my high school. Wow, that is quite a turn. Yeah, I played a couple of years of college football. Did you really? I did at UC Santa Barbara. So Marcus, let's dig into this a little bit because it, it, it sort of starts sort of drawing visibility into your competitive nature. You know, so you go from sort of non-athletic to sort of very athletic. You know, what was your internal motivation? How did your family approach that, if at all? Like what sort of prompted that at about face? Was it health scare? Was it? Honestly, I wanted to be cool. I went into high school and I was on the speech and debate team and the football team and the track team. Those were my activities. Hmm. Yeah, right. And, you know, after a while, I didn't even do the debate team anymore. It was the ultimate rebellion. My parents are like, you're going to make us go to these games because they wanted to be supportive. Were your mom and stepdad not athletic? Were they not? They were not athletic, but they were supportive of, you know, whatever, right, whatever. you know, me and my sister wanted to do. Mm-hmm. My sister was an actor and is now a theater professor. And so, wow. you know, they were just great. Very supportive, but uh, mm-hmm. traumatized that I chose to uh, focus on athletics, but it all worked out. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because those are two sports that are psychologically quite different, right? Football is combative and very team oriented, right? You know, the, mm-hmm. there's only one or two positions that are superstar positions. The rest are very sort of collaborative and then track and field. Well, it's a team sport, but it's a lot of individual competition. I think that the greatest lesson I had from sports as applies to entrepreneurship, buddy. Hmm. My high school team, the Grant High School football team, it has been legendarily bad. Like Hmm. once every 20 years or so, it'll have a year where it's not bad. And then it goes back, it regresses to the mean. And when you're on a team in the San Fernando Valley and you're practicing in the 105 plus degree heat, in the smog, in pads, and you're losing, like week after week, you're losing. I mean, like losing, like at (laughs) halftime, the coach says to the referee, can we just run the clock? Like, don't even stop the (laughs) clock. Just let's just run the clock because we're down. And so week after week, year after year of playing together and sucking and continuing to show up for each other, and continuing to work on it. Yeah. And then eventually, in my senior year, we had the best year in the school's history. Really? And I'll never forget that experience. And it has informed my experience as an entrepreneur because sometimes stuff doesn't work. Right. And it's a process. It's a process. And it's and a so marathon, it's like, not a sprint. That's right. Calm seas make for bad sailors, right? Yeah. And so, right. you know, it's like, what did we learn from this failure? Did we get better week to week? Did we get better year to year? You know, well, you're lucky when you work on something and everything just works. That's lucky. I mean, you might be good too, but it's also definitely lucky. Yes. A lot of hard work. So let me, I'm going to dig into a couple more things. because This is great. So Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. I too was sort of the chubby youngster that played D&D with my friends in our pajamas and nerdy game. I loved it, but it did require a lot of imagination. I feel like it it sort of encouraged a lot of creativity and it's brainy, right? You had to be on your toes. You had to be thinking during the game. You know, one of the things when, when we first met and I was sort of testing the boundaries of where you wanted to take Forever Games, you said, look, Forever Games is always going to be fun games. I, and we're not trying to sort of, you know, recreate science. This is a place where people can come and let off some steam. Think back to your sort of pre-computer gaming experiences, and is there anything there that has shaped kind of where you're going now? I think that part of it was that I wasn't a very good D&D player. And so there was always some guy, and he was, you know, the game master. And suddenly I made a wrong move, and I'm behind a door in a hole. And my only way out is if I roll like a 27 on a 63 sided die, and a warlock casts a spell. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm screwed. I've been sitting here for an hour, like waiting for my turn to roll this 67 sided die or whatever. And, you know, I think that that experience made me want to make games where it's like, let's get to the fun fast. You know, I think that when you're a little kid, you have infinite time and no Mm -hmm. money. And then you get older and you're like, wait a minute, my time is precious to me. I don't have an hour to dig into the rules of this. You know, I want to get in and have fun. And the reason why I played those games was actually just for the camaraderie of Mm -hmm. something to do with my buddies. It wasn't the game itself. We could have played, you know, tiddlywinks. Many of your audience have no idea what that is, but that was a game. (laughs) 
There were a lot of games that Buddy and I had to play that, you know, kids today would think were torture, but that's no how it electricity. was. That's no, exactly. So, you know, when I think about these experiences, my family used to play board games yep. together. Like we play Monopoly and Parcheesi and Candyland and things like that. And what I think is really beautiful is bringing play into the world. You know, there's that kind of Japanese concept of ikigai, where you find like、mm -hmm. the intersection of your skills and your passions and everything. And for me, the idea of bringing people together in play is really beautiful. So, you know, my dad is 83 and he can put on the headset and he can go bowling on the moon with my nephew who lives in Kentucky. And they could, you know, meet up and have a game. And that kind of thing can happen all over the world. In our games. And to me, that's it. Like, that's what it's about. Yeah. So let's skip to your senior in high school. Football is sort of coming into focus. You guys have worked hard. You're finally a good team. What happened that year? And then, sort of, how did you decide what you wanted to do after high school? So basically, in my junior year, we actually lost a member of our team. He died,、mm. uh, mysterious illness, and it really rocked us. You know, as a team. And then ultimately, we really came together in that senior year, which made it even more powerful for us. Yeah, right. Seven of us went on to play college football from that team, which is a,、oh. a, a statistically anomalous number for your high school, for any high school in、yeah. one year. And, you know, we were really close. I had no idea what I was going to do with myself as an adult. I always assumed I'd be a lawyer because ever since I was a little kid, people were telling me, This kid's going to be a lawyer someday. But it was just, you know, because I was verbose and <laughs> argumentative. Argumentative. And, you know, my parents didn't raise us to refer to adults as Mr. or Ms. or Mrs. Interesting. Insert last name. It's like, oh, hello, Dave. You know, we were raised as kind of roommates.、Uh, we were like their roommates that were small. And we didn't have rules per se, there wasn't a lot of oversight. It was like, hey, this is your life. Go do it. It was kind of laissez faire, you know? If I was playing a musical instrument and I got tired of it and didn't want to do it anymore, then fine, you know? Not, that's interesting. Not a lot of discipline in the family. Where did that come from? Was your, did your mom and your stepfather grow up in the same kind of environment or was it the opposite and they wanted more freedom? Like, how do you, looking back at the family heritage? I actually asked them about it because I didn't always get terrific grades.、Mm. And so they'd have these parent. Teacher conferences, and the teacher would say, You know, I think Marcus is the smartest kid in the class, but he just doesn't do his homework. He doesn't apply <laughs> himself, but he still shows up and he'll get like a B plus on the test. I don't really understand what's going on. And my parents would just laugh and they go, Yeah, well, that's, that's who the kid that he is. Both of them, I think, were so clear and disciplined and intensely focused in their studies that they just assume that you figure that out on your own. Yeah. You know, my, my mother was an extraordinary intellect. Uh, she's really top of mind because I lost her last year.、Aww. And for her time, you know, she was, you know, she spoke seven languages and she collected、wow. degrees and she did a lot of things, marched with Martin Luther King, and she was extraordinary. And so, great inspiration. She was a great inspiration. And so, I never felt like I had to do just one thing. And so, you, so here you are, you, you're sort of obviously bright, you're a good athlete, you're sort of, you know, being recruited. Where did you go to college and what was that experience like? My freshman year of college, I went to a university called Sonoma State University、mm -hmm. near Sebastopol. Near Sebastopol. And so, basically, when I finished high school, I'm about the size I am now. So, it's like 6'2, 235 kind of kid. And I was not extraordinarily fast. Or tall. And so I kind of got recruited by Division II football schools. And Sonoma State seemed like as good a place as any. I had a friend who was there. So I decided to go there. And I went there for a year. And then while I was in school that, in that year, I really fell in love with learning.、Mm. In my high school, there were 4,000 kids, the classes were crowded. Huge. Huge.、Wow. And it wasn't built for that many kids. It was one of these kind of classic. You know, LA, unfortunately, right,、uh, situations. Right. And then, you know, I loved college. I just loved it. And then I wanted to go to the best. Then at that point, I'm like, well, wait a minute, going to this school, it's a fine school, but this is going to be limiting to me in my life. And so I want to try and get into a better school. And so then I started doing tryouts at better Division II schools, trying to, you know, basically with my grades that I could get in. And I went and tried out for UC Santa Barbara and they, 
were able to help me get in as a sophomore and I transferred. And yeah, I mean, I, I majored in English literature, which I loved English lit. And also uh, English is the only language I speak. So in a way it was kind of cheating. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting. That's now the second part of your life that demonstrates you know, sort of light bulb going on and then sort of your focus and determination. And and I'm starting to see a pattern here, right? You know, something sort of catches your attention, you take an interest in it, and then you you sort of commit yourself to it. Yeah, I think I also, buddy, that we didn't talk about work in high school. Yeah. I also hustled. Like in high school, I had jobs. Interesting. You know, oh. I like when I was 13, I got a job in a pet shop and uh, you're not allowed to work when you're 13. Right. And so there was this, aquarium store and I had an aquarium and I loved my aquarium. And so I, you know, said to the guy, I'm like, Hey, could I help out? He's like, well, I can't pay you in cash. I'm like, well, but you could give me credit. And so then, you know, I started basically working in this pet shop and I would get credit and then friends would come and I would sell them fish that I earned. Yeah, it was a good. very backwards a side hustle. It was a little side hustle. And then I, you know, I worked at the Sherman Oaks Galleria, which is a legendary place. Hmm. You know, I got a job at Miller's Outpost and then I got a job selling high-end men's shoes. And I was always like having a job yeah. on top of everything else. And I just loved what that. What was motivating you there? Was it money? Oh yeah. My parents are incredibly cheap with spending money. They're like, here's your dollar a week. You know? <laughs> that I'm super familiar with. My father, when he turned 50, the company that he had worked for his entire career filed for bankruptcy. And um, I remember I was a, well, rising senior in, in high school. And my dad pulled me aside and he's like, you know, um, I've always wanted to pay for your college, but that's not going to happen. So if you want to go to college, find a way. Uh, and I just remember, you know, thinking to myself, oh my God, quick elevator up to grow up, Phil. But there's something to be said about growing up in an environment where things that you want and maybe a couple of things that you need are not within your reach without your own hard work. And it sounds like you had a little of that in your upbringing. Oh, big time. And they also would, my dad gave me great kind of lessons in a way. They were harsh at the time, but there were things like, uh, I remember I went to him and I said, you know, hey, how much are you paying the gardener to mow the lawn and everything? He said, oh, I pay him, you know, $20 a month. And I said, well, I want that work. Yeah. You know, I want, I want $20 a month. He says, okay. So, you know, week goes by, I mow the grass, do the, trim it, you know, trim the edges, sweep it all up. And I go to him like, hey, can I get, get some money for mowing the lawn? He says, I pay the gardener at the end of the month. Ah. Don't pay weekly. I said, okay. Okay, fair, fair. Got you. End of the month comes. I'm like, hey, end of the month. Yeah, it's payday. Here, here for my money, payday. He says, here you go. He gives me eight bucks. I said, what's this? It's $20. He said, no, no, no. I pay the gardener $20. <laughs> the gardener brings his own lawnmower. The gardener brings his own gas for the lawnmower. Mm-hmm. I never have to remind the gardener to do the gardening. Yeah. I never have to tell that gardener that he didn't do a good job on the edging. Yeah, right. And I said, okay, well, then I got pissed off. And I said, well, then I'm not going to do it anymore. That's, forget it. And he says, are you sure that that's what you want to do? Or do you want to negotiate? Yeah. And then I negotiated and I think I got him up to like 13 bucks. <laughs> good deal though. Good, <laughs> but it was one of those fun. things where it's like, he's like, hey, I'm going to teach you yeah, what a weird in a very real way how to negotiate for yourself, which is hard to do. It is hard to do. And how much of your career expertise do you think was fostered by the classroom versus these kinds of world experiences. I mean, we get into the sort of Peter Thiel, you know, don't go to college, here's a hundred grand. How much do you think you can attribute your sort of prowess in the early parts of your career? I think as you get later in your career, much of it comes from your prior working experience, but in your early part of your career, how much of it do you think comes from those real world experiences, your own working, your interactions with your parents and sort of other friends versus sort of what you're learning in the classroom? I think that for me, I learned a lot from working. I was really fortunate in that I worked for a few entrepreneurs when I was coming up. And those entrepreneurs gave me an unreasonable amount of responsibility for my age. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it's a just go work is the way to go. It's almost like you have to find that person who's just crazy enough 
or I'm not sure whether it gives you a leash. Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember, you know, one point I had a job when I first got out of college, I worked in TV and film and I had this job and this guy let me run everything. We're still friends. His name's John Corey. And he just let me run everything. And I can't believe it now. When I think back on it now, I'm like, wait a minute, you gave a kid right out of college, barely knew how to use a spreadsheet. And it's like, hey, yeah, you're in charge of the budget of millions of dollars and go figure out our production plan and go do this. It's like, wait, what? Like it was insane. And I had such intense imposter syndrome, right? That I just worked so hard. Don't you still kind of? A little bit. I think the best entrepreneurs always have imposter syndrome. I mean, I think that what ends up happening as you get older is you start to say, okay, these are my weak spots. Right. I need to staff around my weak spots or be aware around what my weak areas are so that they don't get me, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, getting back to this hanging on the hairy edge of what you can accomplish. And I don't know if you're familiar with the book, Startup Nation. Mm -hmm. It talks about in Israel, empowering these 18-year-olds in the IDF with these multi-million dollar pieces of equipment and the security of of a 12 million person nation and the sort of, you know, the amount of responsibility that they're given at a young age and sort of what it does to their self-confidence and their prowess and their sort of team collaboration and their sense of, you know, ownership and responsibility and honor. It is a unique mentor or mentoring environment that gives that kind of responsibility to somebody that's not on paper, at least ready for it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that came out clear when we were doing diligence on you, Marcus, is we repeatedly heard, you know, that you had exceptional skills as a mentor to the people that sort of worked around and underneath you. And and maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, sort of your approach towards that. And maybe, you know, again, sort of looking at the early part of your career, sort of what did you learn that helped guide how you manage people today? I mean, you know, again, I, I think back on all these incredible entrepreneurs who gave me too much responsibility Mm -hmm. and I think about, you know, I got out of school, I did TV and film stuff, and then I applied to law school and then deferred. And then I moved to DC and I worked for a startup that was a pack that was Hmm. bundling for what they called new Democrats who were kind of moderate Democrats. And this amazing uh, entrepreneur named Simon Rosenberg, same thing, gave me unreasonable responsibility and it just kept happening. But there wasn't deliberate mentorship in there. Hmm. There was, here's all this work for you to do. Good luck you know, or here's your deadline. It wasn't cultivated. And, you know, later when I thought back on that experience and then I would work with people, young people, and I would think about what I was asking them to do and I would try and give them space to ask me things without feeling embarrassed or at risk. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to feel safe. And for the audience, just real quickly, share with them when you started at Zynga, what your roles were eventually, just so they have that context. Sure. I started at Zynga in 2008. Mm -hmm. And initially, I was a board advisor. I had a startup I was a founder at that was a payments and security startup. And Zynga was trying to figure out how to start charging. And I started going over there in my evenings, and then I just fell in love with the place. Initially, I was hired to be in charge of operations for everything that wasn't games. So I was just standing departments up, human resources, customer service, QA, IT, net ops, like all sorts of things, lots of things I had never done before. And Mark Pink is definitely, it was another example of a guy giving me more responsibility than I had had before. And I give Mark a lot of credit. I have a lifetime of love and loyalty to Mark because when he brought me into that role, the VCs, like Kleiner was not excited. They're like, who's this guy? We've got you know, 10 guys from Stanford that we could just bring in here Mm -hmm. right now. And then Mark's like, yeah, no, Marcus is the guy. And so I went in there and I was responsible for all these things. And I start standing up all these departments and I'm trying to hire in people that are better than I am in each of these roles and just basically giving them what they need and just working that way. And I became for Mark, his go-to guy, something needs to get done give it to Marcus. And that was my role. Yeah. In the end, you know, there was Mafia Wars was a big hit and we had reskinned it. There was like Mafia Wars, there was Vampire Wars, Pirate Wars, Dope Wars, Prison Wars, Pet Wars, like Car Wars, it went on and on. No one was managing them. And I said, I want to learn games, give me those games. 
and I took a team and I ended up being pretty good at games. And I moved over and ended up becoming the COO of uh, game studios, which was just a tremendously fun job. And my mission though, in these organizations, and we were hyperscaling. And so I wanted every position to have a job architecture and a growth path Hmm. so that you could, if you were an, an individual contributor, you could grow. If you were a manager of people, you could grow and both have equal status in the organization. Mm-hmm. And so even an organization like QA, Game QA, for the one out of 100 that wants to learn to be an engineer, you know, I created pathways for them to become engineers. And that was like a big passion of mine is how do I grow people? Someone comes in and they're a community manager. Give them career paths. How does someone who comes in as a community manager become a product manager mm-hmm. at Zynga, mm-hmm. which is a place that's filled with people who, you know, went to the top schools and are, are deeply analytical? How do we as an organization support that? And so to me, that was the extension. That was the evolution of the mentorship that I got. Interesting. But but in so many regards, what I'm hearing is that you actually didn't have the mentorship. You were given a lot of rope um, and you had to find your own path. And it sounds like from that experience, you decided that it was important to give people plenty of leash, but also at least sort of you know shine the flashlight ahead of them so they can see at least a path forward exactly and then one of the jobs that i had at zynga for instance was resourcing you know who Mm -hmm. goes where and so we would try and assess in the hiring process like if we were hiring a new grad is she gonna shine brightest in an organization with a lot of structure or Mm -hmm. you know like a you know an existing team like a, a farmville that's been running for a few years or would she do better in a more dynamic environment, maybe a new game that doesn't have all that structure? Interesting. Yet. And so we would try and assess like which environment someone would do best in because it's not one size fits all. No, that's for sure. You know, it resonates big time with me. And in my prior career as a lawyer, it was exactly that. It was almost binary. You'd have some people that just thrived on having a lot of room around them, not having people over their shoulders, letting them figure it out. They might stumble or fall. I frankly was one of these people. I just did not want eyes on what I was doing. I wanted to make my own sausage whatever way I wanted, and then I would produce a a nice link. And then there was other people that, very bright, it wasn't a matter of aptitude, that really needed to see a formula. And once given a formula, just nailed it. It's hard, though, to figure out who those people are in advance of watching them work. Yeah. How did you do that? How did you assess that? I mean, sometimes we would just ask them. (laughs) Hey, if you had a choice, they're self-aware. If you had a choice, or you would look at what kinds of projects they had done in college, yeah. like you'd say, "Hey, tell me about your favorite jobs that you've had," mm-hmm. and then you'd sort of tease out, "Oh, did they give you a lot of training? Did they kind of leave you alone? You know, how was that for you?" And then also, you know, how much pressure when you first start? You know, mm-hmm. so you know, a live game team, there's a lot of support. New game team, a lot of pressure. Yeah, right. You know, so it's just different. But when I think back on the evolution there. I really was trying to scale people. So part of it was thinking about how I could do that effectively. And it's, it's really about people feeling safe, safe to make some errors, safe to have a manager yeah. they can go to when they don't know what's going on. You know, for me, when I think about it, there's that idea, there's that old adage, oh, there's no such thing as a stupid question. That's not true. There are plenty of stupid questions. There's asking a question that someone else already just asked five seconds ago. That's that's stupid. It's a waste of time. You're just trying to seem like you're smart or rephrasing an existing question. That's also stupid. That's a waste of time. Asking your question without having done any thought at all is dumb. If someone would come to me and say, hey, how do I do XYZ? I'd say, why don't you think about how to do it? And then come back and and say, hey, I think the way to tackle XYZ is through ABC. What do you think? And sort of helping people learn to think. And, you know, getting back to your question, when I think about it, practically speaking, I got a lot from working and working with different types of people, working with people that were older than I was when I was younger. I had to work with people that were 20 years older than I was and when I first got in TV and film. And some of them I managed. And so learning to work with people from different backgrounds and different ages and things like that. But then I also did go get an MBA. And getting the MBA was essential for me because I majored in English literature. And hmm. I needed to learn how to read a P&L. Right. And I needed some core skills right. 
in order to play at the like public company level, for instance. Maybe Peter Thiel's, he's made of different clay. I wouldn't have knuckled down and figured all of that out uh, without having that you know, two-year break. And I actually didn't even take a break. I did it while I was working. Well, I firmly believe that some of the things you learn in B-School, statistics, finance, those things are things that I don't believe they're very intuitive, but once they're pointed out to you, they're really critical parts of, of sort of understanding how a business operates. Well, let me close the loop on, on the management side of it, though, because it, there's two things that I want to kind of tease out and be blatant about. One is this idea of managing either with fear or with support, you know, sort of there, there are models of entrepreneurs that sort of have ruled the roost with fear. You know, I, I don't know specifically, but sort of rumor is that, you know, the Tesla working environment is very, very competitive and very harsh. And it's sort of a walk around on pins and needles. And then the flip side of it is companies, again, I don't have firsthand knowledge of this, but we hear that companies like Netflix are almost the opposite, where it's just a sort of creative juice runs through the organization and everybody's welcome to sort of, you know, pursue what interests them and and are free to speak up and sort of manage their responsibilities in their own fashion. There's clearly been successful businesses built on both models. It sounds though, like in your experience, that you've embraced the latter, the lead by support, not by fear provided that the people that you're leading are self-thinking and you know, thinking for themselves, not sort of being lazy-brained about it. In terms of this idea of working through fear or a fear-based organization, I don't think that's great for creativity. You know, I think that there's kind of four kinds of company cultures. And people think of culture as like, oh, we have happy hour on Friday or something like that. But but that's not culture. That's just fluff. Yeah, release you know. Out. Yeah, like culture is, you know, what do you recognize in your organization? What are the processes and what are the awards and what are the things that you give out that lead to the outcomes that you want to see? And, you know, if you're in some kind of an organization that's, you know, hierarchical, that there's six sigmas involved, you're, you know, putting rivets in airplane wings and things like that, or you're working at Schick and you're trying to figure out how to make a razor blade, you know, three microns thinner to save, you know, a bunch of dough, then you're going to run your organization one way and you're going to lack things. You're going to lack creativity. You're going to lack original thought. And then you might have to try and use acquisitions to go buy the Dollar Shave Club or whatever. Mm -hmm. If you're a Google you're a moonshot company, you know, you're doing these big, big things. Amazon, I'm in awe of because that is a tough place to work. It's Mm -hmm. a legendarily tough place to work, but they do incredible things. And they do things where I think, you know, what Bezos built was he had this big moonshot kind of factory and then he had this hierarchical side. So it's like, someone's like, Hey, if we buy whole foods now, in 30 years, like all college graduates will have a credit card, we'll have this, we'll have blah, 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 blah. And then instead of him saying, whoa, I don't want to deal with lettuce, lettuce expires. You know, I don't want to deal with perishables. Instead, he knows he can turn over to this hierarchical team that just gets it done. Executes. Executes. And so I imagine that in that organization, they reward creativity and they reward getting it done. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they're doing it with fear, I think they're doing it with rewards, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and probably strict, strict guidelines, guardrails. Yeah. And in a startup, the tough thing is that you don't have time to let people just create or wander off because you do need to ship things. Yeah. Right. But what we try and do at Forever Games is have hackathons and then hackathon projects make it into the games. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So let's sort of go through the the journey from college to TV to the sort of harder technology and then ultimately to sort of gaming. So coming out of college, you sort of work at a studio. So actually starting in college. Mm -hmm. So randomly I'm in college and I get in this car accident and my car gets destroyed and I go to LA. Were you hurt? I was hurt. I couldn't play football anymore, which was okay. So your Jewish mother must've liked that. Yeah. She was like, sweet. And my brain's glad because all these concussions. But essentially, I went to LA to go and look for a new used car, new to me. And Mm -hmm. I'm test driving this car with this guy named John Corey. And we're talking about 
ideas and he's a tv producer how did he come into your circle i was looking for a car and he had an ad for a used car he was selling his car and so (laughs) we're driving around in his rx7 and i'm excited about getting this rx7 and with this money from this guy destroyed my car and so i'm getting a check and i'm excited to get a cool car you know in college and we're talking and back then there were videos for everything buddy there was like eight minute abs and there were like videotapes for literally everything and we start talking in the car and that show real world had just come out and there was this video called where there's a will there's an a and i said god that thing's terrible someone should make a kind of real world style video where they actually interview kids in college and get the real story on like what it takes. Cause it's only part of it is how you take notes. Part of it is how you get along with your roommates and all this other stuff. He says, that's a great idea. And I was like, yeah, okay. And I bought his car five months go by. I get this call on my answer machine, no cell phones. Okay. And it's this guy, John, he's like, Hey, can you give me a call? I'm like weird. So I call him back and he says, Hey, I took out a second on my house and I don't even know what that means. Well, right. second on the house. I don't know what that means. Right. He's like, yeah, I took out a second on my house. I'm going to make that video. Do you want a job? And so I said, sure. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, he was an entrepreneur and we made a video called The Secrets to College Success, huh. which they used in high schools all over the country and they sold it on TV and the whole thing. And so oh. that was my first kind of media project. And he sent camera crews to... UC Santa Barbara, and I would set up these shoots, and I was a producer. Fantastic. And we would interview kids about how they did well, how they picked their classes. And I wrote this book that came with the video, and it was this like cool thing that I did, you know? Oh. And I was like, wow, I could be a TV producer, you know? Did you get paid for it? Was it a paid? Oh, yeah, I got paid. Yeah, yeah. I got paid. Oh, and I was even part of the marketing of it. So, I would go to these conferences where the uh, buyer for the store for the university or whatever was there. And, you know, college is really expensive and it was going from four years to five years and people, all this money. And so part of the story was, Hey, here's this kid who made this video. Like this is a kid. And I was part of the story and I would talk about it with these buyers. And so I got, again, I'm these work experiences where I worked with people that were older than I am and I could just be in the room and confidently speak to this product. Right. And so I had the experience of working with the team, of putting something together, of editing it, of seeing it all come together. And then having the joy of putting something into the world for people to view. And so I did that. And then in my senior year, he and I are still talking, you know, we're still working on this project together. He says, oh yeah, I just got this new show, the Vietnam experience stories from the front line. I'm like, that's amazing. I'm taking a history class this quarter. It's called lessons from the front lines, grunt chronicles or something like that. It was like the exact same thing. It was his same show. And he said, do you want a job being a producer on this A&E show? And I said, sure. And so yeah. basically these guys would come to this class and we would all say, welcome home. And then oh, we wow. would, this beautiful class. And then I went to the professor and I said, hey, can I interview the people afterwards? Yeah. And then I was, that was it. I got out of school and I became a TV associate producer and then a producer and then an EP. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. How long was that stint of your career on the film side? So basically I did that for, I guess about six years. I stopped at one point. And was it mostly documentary kind of stuff? Or Yeah, so I basically made documentaries with John Corey, that guy who gave me that first yeah. break. We made a bunch of shows for A&E for a company called Greystone. And then mm-hmm. I kind of got a little tired and I wasn't sure how I was going to reach the next level. I had a job reading scripts as a side hustle for Oliver Stone. I'm like, how am I going to break into film? I don't really know anybody. And it was entertainment's not a meritocracy. You know, it might be if you're a performer, but working in production, it's just really hard. It's just who you know. And so I kind of was losing my spirit about it. And I applied to law school and I applied for a journalism internship and I got this journalism internship. Then I moved to DC. I decided not to go to law school for a while. Then I worked for this PAC that was the first PAC to bundle donations for candidates. Hmm. Uh, had not been done. I mean, this is in 96. So this is Clinton running for a second term. Yeah. And, you know, Yahoo was the hottest company in Silicon Valley. And so I did that. And then my old friend, John Corey calls, he says, Hey, that show that we worked on that pitch, it got picked up. We're starting our own company now. Do you want to come back? 
And so I went back and I was the COO, essentially. I was the executive in charge of production, which is the COO. What was the show? What was that show? That was uh, Sworn to Secrecy. They ended up doing, I think, 80 hours of it. I worked on the first 52 hours. Great. And then while I was in that job, dealing with the imposter syndrome and running this massive budget and all this other stuff and hiring people and firing people, my biological father passed away. And instead of really kind of processing that experience, I didn't really know how to process the experience. Mm. And so I basically just kind of dug a hole and put all of my feelings and everything in that hole. And then I just filled in the hole with dirt and then forgot where I dug the hole. And I decided to go to business school at night while running this production company. Wow, just killing yourself. Just killed myself. Yeah, wow. You know, I kept on with TV and doing business school at night. Most people that start business school while working end up changing jobs sometime, sometime yeah. soon. Yeah. While I was in that program, I ended up deciding I wanted to work in technology. Why was that? Was it more lucrative or you thought you could get to the higher level that way or there, you were a technical geek? Or? Well, I did grow up with computers, thanks to my dad being an engineer. But what really happened was I'm going around and making documentaries is a really cool job. I don't mean to knock it in any way, but I felt like I was doing this job of telling the stories of these incredible women and men who changed the world. But what about me? Like, I'm not changing the world by doing this. I have a chance to be a part of what's next, you know? And then I'm in business school, I'm doing this thing, and then that entrepreneur, Simon Rosenberg, who gave me that job with unreasonable responsibility, he says, hey, we're doing an event in Silicon Valley. Do you want to come up? There should be some interesting people there, and I'd love to see you again. I said, sure, man, happy to. Who's there? Mark Andreessen. I mean, it was like a who's who. And me. And I'm in my mid-20s. Great. And Andreessen's probably the same age that I am, or close to it. And I'm in his house, and I'm hanging out with him. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm doing these TV shows. And he was a big film guy, like loves film and TV, or at least he did back then. I don't, we didn't become friends. That's not part of the story. But we're just like <laughs> rapping about, and he had this, all these videotapes, because it was videotapes. He had like all the Shaft movies, and we're talking VHS about black exploitation right? yeah. films and stuff. And, and I say to him, yeah, I want to work in tech. I live in LA. And he's like, well, forget it. You got to leave LA. He said, you have to just do it. You got to quit. You got to find a job in Silicon Valley. If you try and do this from LA, then you're just going to be some middle manager at some blah thing go and he said go and put yourself in the path of lightning that's what he said to me good advice yeah probably still relevant so then at that event i meet this guy named gene hoffman who at the time he's the ceo of emusic.com the first Mm -hmm. company to sell mp3s pay artists the royalties the whole thing and we become friendly and i tell him that i want a job he's like well we're hiring and I became a director of operations, you know, for a startup. And we ended up going public. And he was the youngest CEO of a NASDAQ company in history. And mm-hmm. then, you know, things went really sideways with Napster basically giving music away for free. I mean, it was like we were selling lemonade and they were giving away beer. Right. It was just an absolute right. nightmare. But then as things happened, you know, and the VP of Human Resources leaves. And so I go to Gene and I say, hey, I covered human resources at my production company. If you need me to sit in the chair while you recruit someone else, I can do it. And he says, great. Yeah, and then a month yours. later, he's like, okay, you're now in charge of human resources. Yeah. You know, and then the you know, head of business affairs leaves. Same thing. And I said, hey, you know, contracts are all kind of templates. I can manage this until you backfill this position. He's like, great. You're the new SVP of ops. <laughs> you know, it was just <laughs> insane. Good lessons, though, for those that are listening is when there's chaos, step into it. Don't step away. Chaos can be a ladder. Yeah. You know, chaos can be a ladder. It's interesting. So as we transition to Forever Games, I would say that the games that you've already published are exquisite. They're exquisite environments, right? They're, you know, I compare them to sort of the competitors, you know, yours are rich experiences. There's a lot of detail. It's fun. It's engaging. It's got texture, as opposed to the very two-dimensional alternatives. And that, that depth, that texture, that complexity comes from managing a lot of resources at the same time and bringing them all together. And, and of course, it's a collaborative effort. It's you, but it's Doom. It's your whole team. But it sounds like the 
ability to produce that has come from the experiences that you garnered working in these films where you had strict deadlines, as you just talked about, but there's also a lot of texture in those as well. You had interviews, you had editing, you had sound, you had environment. Talk a little bit about that and and kind of where the games are going as you think forward to the next set of games that are going to be coming out. You know, I think that that experience in developing product and story in all of the work that I've done, it's all been building up into this. And I've learned a lot from everyone that I've worked with over the years. When I worked with Mark, we made games that were not the most visually stunning games, but the social, we nailed the social. Nailed it. And in VR, it's really the visuals first. And so you've got to capture, you've got to blow people away you know, with the environments. And I think that, you know, right now, I think of like the legs of the table, you know, and one of the legs of the table is art and style. And another leg of the table is social. And another leg of the table is value. You know, do I feel great about what I spent for this game? You know, and then I think the last piece of it is really around loyalty, meaning Mm -hmm. there's an advantage to continuing to play our games versus competitors. Like if you keep investing in your character or you keep investing in your profile that you unlock more goodness. So the more you play over time and the more of our games you play that it ends up being a, a richer experience. Right now, I think that our table is lopsided. And so right now I love where we are on art. I love where we are on our gameplay. And where I want to see us go next is to pump up the social I want there to be tournaments and leagues. I want there to be more rewards for playing all of our titles. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, basically we're going to connect it all together so that there's this, you know, gameplay, social rewards, all of it together at once. And all of that kind of grows into my idea of a metaverse, which is a metaverse that doesn't suck in all of the ways that real life sucks. Mm hmm. And so in our games, the idea is that you're playing and you're moving between the games. And so instead of a flat, infinite world of user-generated content, that there's these beautiful games, each one made by game makers, that the quality is unmatched and the value is unmatched. That's what I'm hoping to build in forever. And you know, at the kind of foundation of that is games that everyone can play, mm-hmm. you know? Grandparents can play with their grandchildren, like the Wii when we were kids. You know, the Wii, you know, I play, could play with my little sister. Like anyone could play. And so that's what I want to bring into the world. And it was skill based. You know, it's funny, I, I've shared with a bunch of the folks that are involved with Lobby Capital one of the seminal meetings that you and I and Mike had. So I'm going to describe it and then I'm going to ask you to sort of tell me what the future looks like. So we were doing our diligence and getting to know Marcus and his colleague, Mike Doom. And Marcus said, let's meet at the bowling alley. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And so just to sort of conjure, help folks conjure up the experience in forever bowling, there's a bowling alley. And and like bowling alleys in the real world, there's a lobby and the lobby has sort of the place you rent your shoes. And then there's a little store where you can buy bowling balls or gloves or those kinds of things. And then there's a jukebox. And then when you're ready to go bowling, you go to the bowling alley and the bowling alley can look like a traditional bowling alley or it could be a bowling alley underwater or it could be Mm -hmm. a bunch of different environments, but it's a bowling alley. Anyway, Marcus, you had said, Hey, tonight let's, let's meet at the bowling alley and let's chat. And I I thought to myself, okay, this is a unique experience, right? I mean, I've, I've met on zoom. I haven't, I haven't met in a virtual bowling alley and yet we did meet there. It was flawless. And, and what was stunning to me was, you know, first of all, you were, for those that have not been in the VR world and experienced the sort of latest headset technology, Marcus would be in one part of the room and I would see him in that part of the room and his sound would directionally come to me from that area. And if he came closer, his avatar would come closer and his sound would come closer again from that location. It's flawless. And when he was nodding his head, I could see him nodding his head. I think over time, when you blink your eyes or when you smile, that Mm -hmm. will also show up. And so we ended up having a conversation, probably 20 minutes or so, where we both talked about stuff, but we also kind of went into the bowling alley and started bowling together. And I finished that experience both knowing you better and knowing Mike better, but also having experienced at least what I think 
could be a part of our future. Now, with that being said, I'm going to stop myself and then ask you, Marcus, what is the future with VR? How does it impact our life? We're going to be walking around all the time with headsets on, or is it something different? And that was kind of a leading question. So tell us, where do you see VR three and five years hence? How does it impact our lives? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you think about VR, if you limit it to, I'm putting this magical headset on and I'm playing a game, then that's a limited application. Mm -hmm. Big market, limited application. Visual computing, a world where instead of being crouched over a laptop that's maybe plugged into a big monitor where I'm actually just leaning back, I've got glasses on or goggles on and the keyboard could be anywhere or I could just speak to type. And I'm basically having, you know, kind of that minority report access to a computer and what that might unlock for us in terms of our output as humans, not to mention like my shoulders get tight. So I think that, you know, what we're going to see coming out in the next 12 months, even less, is going to be some future of work stuff applications that are going to be really exciting. And so some people are going to get into visual computing through a $300 headset. And other people are going to get it through a $1,000, $2,000 work device. And they're all going to play games mm-hmm. because that's what you do. I mean, I remember playing Minesweeper on a green screen. And so, you know, in my mind, what we're talking about is a future of visual computing where we're freed from this sort of tethered existence. And, you know, I think that with the remote work stuff, especially, it's like people have more and more control over what their work environment is. And so this sort of over-the-desk stuff, within three years, we're going to start seeing more and more companies deploying this technology. In 10 years, I think visual computing will be somewhat ubiquitous for knowledge workers. VR is used a lot in training now. It's a, a very hot sector. So I think that's going to continue to grow. As far as like everyone's walking around with glasses on. I don't even know how I feel about that. I like the idea of people not walking around with glasses on all the time because people are already distracted. Uh, And I remember, you know, when Google Glass came out, they, they called people glass holes if they were wearing those things. But if they have great utility, then that'll be interesting. But if you think about it, when we first got our iPhones, we were all showing each other the latest apps that we found. And it was like, oh my God, have you seen this app? Have you seen this app? And you know, if you got featured in the app store, that was good for a million installs. And now it's 50,000. And so it's going to be a while before there's a lot of applications for these technologies beyond what is like really very practical or very fun. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things you had said to me as we were kind of moving forward with our process was, you know, look, initially you could foresee a world in which game consoles sort of are replaced by VR headsets. Better price point, functionality is extraordinary. I mean, the the Quest 2 is, I think, just a phenomenal device. It's just unbelievably cool. And provided that there's the right content that comes onto the platform, you could start seeing folks saying to themselves and to their friends, you know, let's do this instead of pulling up the Xbox. That in and of itself is a massive market. And I think that to me resonated as a compelling vision of the next 24 to 36 months, that, that I could see that starting to unfold during that time frame. After that, it's harder because I don't have as much visibility as you do in terms of what hardware is going to be coming out. I will say I was goofing around a month or so ago and I stumbled on this application in the Quest 2 App Store where it was a pottery class. Wow. Where you actually sort of learn how to make pottery in the VR world. And then when you're done, presumably you can sort of locate a local sort of studio where you can actually apply what you learn to the real world. That sort of opened my eyes to kind of an interesting meld of kind of the VR gaming environment to the kind of real world skill set. So it's going to be, I think, I can't predict what kind of content will come out. I know that it's going to be forever games. I know there's going to be sort of an increasing amount of very compelling experiences there. I mean, if you haven't done bowling, if you haven't done darts and sort of when cornhole comes out, give it a try. I mean, it is truly, truly extraordinary. And then if you're fortunate to have some friends that are also able to access a Quest 2 headset, it's even more fun because it's painless to meet and, and play for five minutes or 20 minutes or two hours. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things I think that you really touched on that we got to do when we played together during that diligence meeting is 
if you play somebody in Words with Friends, that's an asynchronous social experience. Mm-hmm. We're not playing at the same time. You know, taking the time to go meet up with a friend and bowl or play darts or cornhole in VR is a fundamentally different kind of getting together to play with your friend in a video game. It's way better than Xbox. It's way better than I'm on a desktop and I have a headset on. We could give each other high fives and sparks fly out. You know, I can basically, you know, go pew, 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 pew and make, you know, finger guns at you. And I can have really the kind of experience that we would have if we were together. And that's really what it's about. That's the kind of game that you can play or your kids can play. And you don't have to worry that they're getting messed up. You're not getting messed up bowling. Exactly. You know, like you're not getting, you're playing with real people and it's just fun. Yep. You know, Marcus, at your very core, and this this is hard to answer because I've been asked this question many times and I think I've probably given many different answers, but sort of attempt an answer to the following, which is ultimately what motivates you when all is said and done in five, 10 years from now, 15 years, whatever the time frame is, what will be a success for Marcus Siegel? Talk about it generally, but also as, as it relates to forever games. Like what motivates you and ultimately what will be an A plus on your report card for you? You know, I think that there are different kinds of entrepreneurs and different pathways to finding it. You know, for some people, it's like they're working in financial services somewhere and they're like, gosh, my job would be much easier. And people like me, our lives would be so much easier if this product existed. Companies would pay for this and then they decide to go and do it. And they're solving a specific problem in an area that they have deep expertise. And you call those, that first category, you, you referred to them as scalpels. scalpels. Like they have deep domain expertise. They have, in their minds, they have an unfair advantage in that they think that they have a very clear idea of product market fit. And so the challenge for them might be, how do I get the team together to build it? You know, yeah. da, 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 da. And those entrepreneurs, they may end up not really knowing how to sell it at scale, right? Like that, that might be the challenge. And look, you, you find a, a great VC partner and they can help you figure that out and the other thing. Then you get these other entrepreneurs that are doing stuff and they're very talented and often very young and they don't actually know what product market fit is yet. And that's okay too, because sometimes they find the most extraordinary pockets of growth that no one had ever thought of before. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, Travis Kalanick never ran a taxi company, right? But he was the oh, guy right. who was hustled and he saw an opportunity and he, you know, created it. And so, you know, I think that when you think through this exercise you're doing and it's like, hey, what is the moment that you decided that you should go and start this? You know, so you get someone like me and I had to make a choice. I had to choose between going and being a COO of another big company or a COO of another startup or a lot of COOs that become CEOs do so because some VC says, okay, we got to replace this CEO. You know, he or she isn't. We need your help here. Yeah, you're, you're coming in to, to bail this one out because you're an operator. But I didn't do that. I got to choose what I wanted to do and I chose to do this. And what would make me do that? What would make me forsake enormous guaranteed salary against the opportunity to bring something new into the world. I mean, it is interesting, Marcus, because, you know, there are people that would say we're too early in VR, you know, Mm -hmm. it's too early. The headsets are still clunky. The content's still not there. People don't want to be in a virtual environment. Like what did drive you to make that decision? I've had the different VR headsets that have been evolving over the years. And I was in that camp. When I was at Zynga, I looked at VR, like it was having its renaissance, you know, with Palmer Luckey's first Oculus Rift. And I thought, this is not going anywhere at this price point. But at $300, I thought, okay, this is a moment, you know, and this is going to- $300 and untethered. Untethered, $300 headset. This is a go. This is incredible. And this is going to change things. And the idea of being early was exciting to me. When I went to Zynga, people thought I was nuts. They said, you're going to make games for Facebook? And back then, you know, we made more money you know, on MySpace and Bebo than we did on Facebook. And mm-hmm. I saw all the same signs. I was like, man, people don't get it. They don't get it. 
And that's an opportunity. And so, you know, if I had to choose between making an application or a game for mobile, where making a game in mobile is like putting a grain of sand on the beach and hoping millions of people find it. I mean, there are millions of apps and games and stuff created every year. And VR is just wide open. And I thought, wow, I can make category defining products in this new modality. And that's a rare opportunity. You don't get a lot of those. Mm -hmm. And so that was what made me decide to do it. I also, on a personal level, I work with a coach and we plotted out all these different potentialities because I'm a multi-potentialite, right? So I had them all listed out. I'm like, oh, you know, go join a rocket ship. Go be a full-time mentor. Like, be a VC. I had all these different ideas plotted out. And then on this axis, on the horizontal, I had all of these different things I cared about. You know, work-life balance, which I've never really had. But the idea that I would have it is appealing. You know, work with smart people, build a great culture. So then I kind of mapped all these things out that I cared about. And then he had me score them. And when I did it all out, when I plotted everything all out, it was either work at a rocket ship startup or start my own thing. Mm -hmm. They had the same exact score. And the difference was money. And so if I took the money out of it, then start my own thing was the leader. Like it had the challenge, you know, the develop my vision, it had everything. And when it took money out, it was the clear leader. And so, you know, I looked at it and I said, wow, so I'm willing to, if I go on the rocket ship, I'm gonna not spend time with my friends and family. I'm not going to really build the culture because there will already be right, a culture. It already exists. I was like, wow, I'm really giving up quite a bit by joining this sure thing. That's not a sure thing. Right. That's for sure not a thing I'm going to do. Right. Wow. I was going to say, is that what I think is interesting for your podcast is what is the moment you decided to go for it? You know, you might get someone like me who I'm entrepreneurial, but I've joined other people's ventures, right? Like I was a founder of another startup, but I wasn't the CEO, you know, I was, you know, one of the first three. I joined Zynga early, but, you know, Mark Pincus could have been doing anything. You know, it's interesting. I've always thought of myself as risk adverse, you know? And when I look back at my career, first, I, I was attracted to a lot because I thought it was kind of like a foreign language. It'd be fun to learn about it. And I had a friend's dad who had been a lawyer turned business person that was wildly successful. And I thought to myself, okay, that, that's an interesting path. But I went into the law and, and started working because the salaries were at a certain altitude that felt really, really luxurious. That literally was kind of the prompt to start it. And I ended up staying in the law. So that's a conservative path. On the flip side of it, though, I did a year into my practice of law, leave Chicago and came to Silicon Valley. So that was risk number one. I came to a community that I knew nobody in. I joined a law firm and started working with startups. That was kind of risk number two, because I had no clue about startups. And then um, along that path, I ended up helping co-found a new law firm called Gunderson Detmer, which was risk number three. And you know that was, in hindsight, um, crazy, but uh, at the time just seemed logical. And then a few years later, ended up doing it again, starting Perkins Coie's offices. And then I started a company, Titan Aerospace, which was a risk. And then I started another company and then ultimately did Lobby Capital. And so it's interesting when you talk about sort of what was the catalyst for jumping into your kind of entrepreneurial venture. For me, it was almost subconscious. It was almost the best, most obvious path of success as opposed to the biggest risk. Meaning when I left Brobeck to do Gunderson Detmer, the lawyers that I was working for, the lawyers that were producing opportunities for me were going to start this firm. So of course I was going to go with them. And when Titan Aerospace sort of came into my focus and I met the entrepreneur and I heard what he was doing, it was so obviously going to be fun that how could I not do it? And I think what I'm hearing from you with Forever Games is, you know, it was an obvious path for you to continue to exercise the muscles that you had built and to achieve the goals that were obvious to you, as opposed to this crazy risky thing that may not work. And I think the best entrepreneurs sort of take that step. They don't think of it as, oh my God, what's the probability of success? They instead think to themselves, this is logical. Of course I got to do this. This may not be financially lucrative, hope it is, but it will be lucrative to the other things that are important in my life. Is that a fair? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think that you have to believe you're going to succeed 
or that you can succeed. And it also should scare the crap out of you a little bit. Right. You have to right? have that fear behind your feet. Uh, yeah. Like I don't want to fail. That would suck. I don't want to do that. And that motivates me. But I know that if I did fail, I'm going to be okay. You know, I have taken my lumps in my life. Things happen. And that's also a reason to go for it. Absolutely. But you also use the word courageous. Entrepreneurs are the most courageous creatures because there's no guarantee and it's all sitting on their own shoulders, at least initially. And so I think courage is maybe sort of the byproduct of hard work, self-confidence and a little bit of good luck in there. But it does require a lot of courage to step up and do something on your own. And so I admire you for that. I want to make games that are the canon of sports in VR. Like I want our games to be one of the first games that everyone gets. It's like we are a brand that is synonymous with social and quality and value. And I want to entertain millions and millions of people with our games. And I want my company and this brand to persist after I'm gone from the earth. That's what I want for Forever Games. I want people to say, thank you, these are great, which we get a lot of reviews like that and it's great. We also get reviews that are like, hey, I wish you had this or that. And we are just as thankful for those. Beyond professionally, I've been lucky that I've sort of discovered that I get a lot of joy from helping other people. So I hope to continue to mentor startups, which I've done you know, through programs like Google Launchpad and YC and Web Summit and just sort of making myself available to entrepreneurs that are trying to figure it out and sort of being supportive of that community. And I also support causes that I care about. I you know, raise money here and there and just try and leave the world better than I found it. So that's the sort of output side, right? So build a great company that entertains millions of people, help other people and get satisfaction from that. This was so freaking awesome, dude. I loved walking through your history. I loved hearing your answers and I'm as excited as I've ever been about Forever Games. I just love it to death. So fun. Well, I've enjoyed this immensely to the fabric audience. Keep up the fight, you know, persevere. You'll get through it. Great advice. Great encouragement. All right. This has been The Fabric, a podcast by Lobby Capital. Make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming episodes and content. I'm Buddy Arnheim, and I look forward to our next conversation.